If you're not familiar what we're doing on Wednesday night, for the last two years, actually, we've been going through the books of the Bible and looking at one book every single night. And this evening, we have made it all the way to 2 Timothy. And so um, let's begin with a word of prayer, and we'll talk about this book. Lord Jesus, I ask in your holy name that you would uh, open our eyes, our ears, and most importantly, Lord, that our hearts. We want to understand with our minds, Lord, and we want to grasp in the depth of our being what these truths mean and, and why they should matter to us. So address them in our lives, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The verse, verse ah, that's a good start right there. <laughs> um, anyway, okay. Uh, 2 Timothy is, as with 1 Timothy, was written by Paul. In fact, he tells us in the superscription, the beginning of the verse, he says, of chapter 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and then he adds this little thing, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. It's such a prominent statement in the fact that as Paul is writing this, he knows that shortly his life is going to come to an end. And that's why some people have referred to this as Paul's last will and testament. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But essentially, he's talking about the promise of life, not life here on earth, nearly so much as he's talking about the promise of eternal life, which is where he knows he is headed. It's written to Timothy, who we spoke of last week to some length. He calls him my dear son. In 1 Timothy, he calls him my dear son of the faith. Uh, Timothy had joined Paul early on his uh, second missionary journey and had really been much like an adoptive son to him, at least in the spiritual sense. He became essentially the family that Paul lost at the point of his conversion that was taken from him. So it's a letter to Timothy. It's a last letter as far as we know. We have no other evidence of any communication between Paul and anyone else, in fact, uh, but especially with Timothy after this letter was written. So it's not illogical to assume this may have been the last thing that Timothy ever heard from Paul. Um, but it's also written to a broader audience uh, by simple application because I love the way Chuck Swindoll said, he's, he says, it's written to everyone tempted to throw in the towel. In other words, anyone who comes to that point just saying, I just can't go on anymore. I don't want to continue on. Because one of the things that seems kind of unspoken but really kind of, uh, kind of flows through the entire letter is that Timothy was a person who at this point was struggling with something I know that you've never experienced but called discouragement. That there's a, there's a, there's can come a point of emotional letdown where you really don't have the emotional energy to keep going. At least you don't think so in your own mind. But again, we'll dig into that a bit more as we get into the midst of the text here. Uh, but 2 Timothy, as I said, is our last surviving letter, even though we have Titus and Philemon yet to look at. Uh, their, Paul's letters are arranged mostly in order of by their size, not by their chronology. And this would have been the last letter that Paul wrote. And um, it's probably in the year 67 AD. Uh, why is that significant? Well, Four years previous to this letter in 64, in July 18 and 19, 64 AD, uh, the city of Rome experienced what's called the Great 
fire of Rome, uh, a devastating fire. <clears throat> there, are 14, there were 14 districts to the ancient city of Rome. Eleven of them uh, were, had fire raged through them. Three of them were completely destroyed. I mean, literally, there was nothing left but a pile of ashes. Um, Thousands died. Uh, many more were left homeless. Uh, their businesses, their livelihood, their earthly possessions were gone. It was an overwhelmingly dis devastating experience. Uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, writing about a century after the event, um, basically suggested or at least surmised that the fire had been started by Nero, the emperor. And he suggested that Nero wanted to rebuild the city uh, with greater grandeur, and that's why he put the city on fire. Historians today don't really support that conclusion. In fact, what Tacitus probably was really sharing was what became a common accusation. When people go through great loss, when they go through significant grief, our tendency by nature is to want to find someone to hold responsible for what happened. And that's, very, that's the very common expression of grief. We want to find who is responsible for bringing this harm into my life. And most historians now say the city of Rome caught on fire uh, all on its own. There were heavy winds. Uh, it was a very dry season. It just had to start in one place. Much of the city was built out of wooden buildings. After that, they were replaced by brick. But this would have been really something that was uh, preset for a major conflagration like this. And it probably was just one of those events. In fact, we know that Nero himself wasn't even in the city when it happened. But this sets up an interesting dynamic because as the, the people began to look for someone to blame, and Nero was not particularly well-liked at the time, he had already begun to, what historians think, was basically to go crazy. I mean, he basically appointed his horse to be a senator in Rome, and, and, and that was the least of his weird things. I don't even want to describe some of the things he did because they're so distasteful. I mean, he was really a pretty horrific guy in, in a lot of ways. <clears throat> but the point is that he began to look around for a scapegoat. And it probably didn't take him very long to find one because there was a very obscure, often despised, illegal religious group. In other words, the Romans were basically uh, pluralistic in their religious feelings. They really didn't have problems with people worshiping different gods. What, what they had is somebody worshiping one of the gods that they hadn't pre-approved for worship. So if you wanted to worship the Egyptian god Ishtar, or, I mean the Assyrian god Ishtar, or Isis in Egypt, or something like that, they didn't really care. In fact, many times they would incorporate these different deities into their pantheon. But the point was that they had to be approved by them, because as long as you were willing also to offer sacrifice to the emperor as being a god, and you were willing to show respect to the other Roman gods, you know, things like Janus and Mars and the rest, whom all of our, most of the calendar of day, months that we have today are named after Roman gods based upon the, the Julian calendar of, of Julius Caesar. Uh, if you would honor those gods, they in turn would uh, let you do what you want to do. But you had this weird group. In fact, they referred to the early Christians Christians as being atheists, 
uh, because they rejected the gods. They didn't believe in the gods, therefore they were atheistic against the gods, against theos or the gods. And, and they refused to bow down and worship Caesar, so they became particularly unliked because it was believed that by honoring the gods, you ensured the blessing of the gods upon the city and upon yourself. By not sacrificing and honoring them, then you were inviting the wrath and the judgment of the gods. And so it's a very easy to find this religious group that doesn't want to play the games with everybody else who is worshiping this odd resurrected person called Jesus um, and won't sacrifice the emperor, obviously, if they weren't directly involved, at least because of their theological practices, they invited this judgment that fell upon our city, and therefore, there is only one solution, and that's to build a wall across Mexico. No, I mean, excuse me. Uh, there's only one solution, and that's to, uh, to eliminate them. Just simply, we need to get rid of them. Death is the least that they deserve. And so, it took a while, but eventually we find that Paul and later on even Peter as well were arrested as being part of the ringleaders of this religious movement, especially Paul because he had spent time previously in the city, and as we talked about earlier in, the, in Paul's prison letters, that he had a record. You know, they had his, they had his uh, picture in the post office for a while, and so they, they knew who he was, and he was the first to be apprehended and uh, really was rather quickly indicted, uh, convicted, and executed. The only mercy in all of it was that because he was a Roman citizen, he could not be crucified. Tradition tells us, we have no other outside evidence, but tradition tells us that Peter, on the other hand, was actually crucified and died in that way, but Paul was beheaded. This was the uh, judgment or the punishment that was believed to be fitting for a Roman citizen who had committed the worst of crimes. We're told by tradition as well that he was kept in the Mamertine prison. Uh, today, there's a, a cathedral that's built over the top of it. You see the little arrow. It doesn't show up real clearly in this picture, I'm afraid, but there is really kind of a hole or a stairway that goes into the basement, and that's because originally the Mamertine prison was a cistern for a catchment for water. Basically, they'd dig a hole out in the ground of, of somewhere there was solid rock, and they would use it to hold water, and so it eventually became a prison. The prisoner would be lowered in through a hole in, in the ground level and dropped into this cavern, and uh, it was very cold, it was very dank, um, it had no light, and it was impossible to escape without the assistance of someone else coming in and lifting you out of it. So that uh, this is what we're told traditionally was the fate of Paul. People weren't kept in prisons for long period of times. They didn't have places of incarceration for months, much less years in the ancient world. This was only a place that they were brought to be, to be held until they were executed. It's quite possible that Paul may have only spent weeks, and by the time Timothy received this letter, it's even possible that Paul had already been executed. We, don't, we just don't have any fast, hard figures. But it wasn't like Paul was languishing away in the Tower of London for, for 40 years or 20 years or two years or anything like that. It was something that when he's there, it's, it's, he's already been condemned and his execution is very quick. And that's the tone of this letter. 
And Paul, Paul talks about how he is, he is ready for his departure. He knows that his departure from this earth, this life, is very close. But what makes it especially difficult is the fact that Paul felt very alone. The sense of, of abandonment was, was clearly expressed. He, he says, for example, in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, you know that everyone in the province of Asia, keep in mind, Timothy was in Ephesus, which was the major city of Asia, the part, part of modern-day Turkey, but it was called Asia. We refer to it later as Asia Minor. He says those who had come with him in ministry there, he says, all of everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. So he's writing to Timothy and saying, uh, the whole ministry team from your city and the surrounding cities have all fled and abandoned me. Uh, he says in verse 10 of chapter 4, For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus, who we'll look at his letter next time, Titus to Dalmatia, which is basically... Uh, uh, modern-day Hungary in that area, as, or excuse me, modern-day Romania in that area. And again in verse 16, he says, at my first defense, in other words, when he's first brought up on charges, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. So even the church and the believers in Rome, whom Paul had ministered to for at least two years and had strengthened and built up the church, I mean, he is, nobody wants to be, he's radioactive. In other words, everybody knows what's going to happen. Nobody wants to be found standing up for Paul and speaking in his defense for very reasonable or logical fear that if they do, they themselves might be arrested and suffer the same fate that they knew was a foregone conclusion. Well, on the positive side, there were a few who stood with Paul, uh, not surprisingly. He says in verse 16, uh, someone we don't really know, but he says, may the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. Now, keep in mind that if you were put into a prison like the Mamertine, it's not like they had a cafeteria. I mean, if you starved to death while you were there, that's your own fault. It was a responsibility of the family to provide, or friends, to provide food, clothing, or any other amenity that a prisoner might want to have. And so here's this Onesiphorus. Everybody else is you know, basically shuttering the, closing the door and shuttering the windows and hiding away because of fear of what's coming. And here's a guy who very boldly searches until he finds Paul and make sure that Paul, when he says he's refreshed me, it's not just with friendship, but he was making sure that Paul had some basic essentials and needs. In fact, it may be very, very possible that he's the one who eventually took the letter and delivered it on Paul's behalf that we have the opportunity to read and study today. Uh, one other comment he says in, in chapter 4, verse 11, he says to Timothy, only Luke is with me. So Luke, the physician who had been Paul's companion through all these journeys now, is the lone standing uh, supporter of Paul while he is 
uh, in, in prison. Himself probably was probably pretty far advanced in years, and we don't know much about his circumstances other than this last comment about him. As I said, that many, many refer to this letter as Paul's last will and testament, but it is really far more than just that. It really gets down to the question of why did Paul write the letter? What was he hoping to accomplish? And the first thing, I think, is encouragement. I mean, more than anything else, it is a word of encouragement to Timothy. He says things like in chapter 2, verse 1, be strong in the grace of Christ Jesus. Be strong in God's grace. Uh, sometimes we try to find strength in adversity. No, let me rephrase that. All the time, we try to find strength and adversity in our own selves. You know, we, we try to figure out, how am I going to deal with this circumstance? And, uh, and it's many times, we may have enough strength to kind of hang on by the uh, fingertips. But there are things in your life and in my life that we go through that so overwhelm our natural capacities to handle that we become desperate, and in that desperation, we often do the thing that we probably should have done in the first place, and we begin to call out for God to give us the grace, to give us the strength. And this is really essentially Paul's message. He's saying, Timothy, lean on the grace of God. You know, if you lean on yourself, it'll only take you so far, you'll run out of gas. I call it the burning bush principle. You know, Moses saw a bush burning in the wilderness, and I... In my opinion, I don't think Paul, uh, Moses saw the bush burning and said, oh, isn't that unusual? He must probably thought, well, the bush is on fire and was probably planning on moving on. What caught his attention, I think, was the fact that it kept on burning. Long after the, the fuel that would naturally feed a fire in a bush and burn it to nothing, and then it would be extinguished because there is no more combustibles left, this one just kept on burning and burning and burning. And Moses, being uh, the sharp knife that he was, you know, went over to it and took a closer look, and he found not only was it an eternally burning fire, but it was also a talking bush. <laughs> not to be confused with Three Amigos and the singing bush. That's a whole different bush. This is the talking bush. And, and, you know, basically God speaks to him from the fire that he sees in this bush. And, and, and I think that oftentimes what God wants us to understand is that there are times where he will take you far beyond what you can handle. And I, I know oftentimes we, we read the passage that says, you know, God won't give you anything you can't bear. And if you're thinking of that in human terms, then that true passage isn't true. Because God all the time takes you and I into situations that are so far beyond us. We have problems to solve that are above our pay grade. We have pains that are beyond any kind of sedative that we can take. I mean, we're, we're overwhelmed by certain things. And the reason we can stand up isn't because we, you know, kind of buck up and become tough. You know, somebody comes along and says, be a man. You know, and most women are offended when you say that to them. And, you know, the truth is we can do it because God says, if you cry out to me, I'll give you grace. And, and it'll be this amazing grace when Paul writes to the Philippians and he said that God will give us the peace that passes understanding. You understand what that means? <laughs> in other words, if you try to logically explain or to, explain, to understand even in yourself, why do I find, feel peace in my heart right now? I should be freaking out. And the answer is because God is giving you the grace to trust Him 
in the midst of a circumstance that makes no sense. Now, you may complain, I do, but you may complain that, God, why do you make me go through this, and this isn't fair, and this isn't what I want for my life, and I don't want to do these things. In fact, you know, my first prayer, my first request is, God, make my life healthy, wealthy, and wise without any problems. You know, and uh, I believe that when I'm dead, he's going to answer that prayer. But right now on earth, he says, in this world, you will have troubles, guaranteed. And then he adds, but I've overcome the world. And because he's overcome, he says, I will make you an overcomer as well. But it's not going to be you. It's going to be me working in you, working through you to accomplish my greater purpose. And that is really when we talk about being a testimony for the Lord, being a witness for God, that's where it starts. It isn't just our verbal expression because our words to other people often mean very little until we see, till they see in your life this expression of God's grace, His, His capacity, His power, His endurance in you. And, and, and He sees that making a People see that making a difference, and people, you're kind of like that burning bush. And at first, people may just look at you and say, oh, man, that's a, that's a bummer of a haircut, you know? And, and, and then often, and after a while, they look at you and go, your hair's on fire, and you're not, you're not having a problem with that. And you begin to realize, I mean, they begin to say, you know, there's something in your life that I can't explain by normal explanation. There's no logic to it. And, and at that point, then we have words that really do make a difference. It's the grace of God. It's God's presence in my life that enables me to endure hardships, as Paul would say, goes on to say to Timothy, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And this essentially is, is what Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy. In fact, later on in chapter 3 and verse 14, he says to him, continue in what you have learned and have been convinced of. Continue. You know, continuance is often vastly underrated. <laughs> when Paul says in Ephesians 6, he says it three times in a row, stand firm, stand in the Lord, don't be moved. Just sometimes just holding your ground is great victory. That just being able to hold the ground that God has given you because there are times when waves of adversity will come against your life. You know, I, it's so interesting, and Paul uses that in Ephesians 6 passage. He's talking about the armor of God, and he has in mind the, the, the Roman foot soldier. And it's interesting what their objective was, that they built this, this phalanx of, of, of shields with, these, with the gladius, their swords that they would poke with, but their first response wasn't to attack. In other words, they set themselves in what they called the tortoise. It was really this encirclement of, of soldiers who have linked all of their shields together, and their first job was to absorb the attack of the enemy so that the armies of the enemy would come rushing down and would throw themselves against this wall of shields, and suddenly it's almost like a rugby match. The Roman soldiers had spikes on the bottom of their sandals or boots so that they could hold their ground and they would absorb the blow. And then as the, army, the enemy pushed against it, they would just take their short gladius and they would start poking, just start poking, just start poking, finding an opening. And as the enemy would begin to fall by the wounds, then they would just start moving forward. In, and it was the supreme discipline of the Ro Roman soldier that they learned how to do this. And once they got the command from their centurion, they began to move forward little by little, and just pushing against the enemy and push the enemy. And eventually, the enemy front would break, 
and they would begin to run, then they'd send the Roman cavalry after him to, to cut him off and to finish him off. But it was just, you know, it's, it's essentially interesting that Paul says sometimes the best thing you can do is just absorb the attack of the enemy. We often get the idea we should always be marching in victory. And one of the, one of the ways in which enemies, armies often conquer is getting the, 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 their opponent to go racing in for a quick victory and seducing them into thinking they're winning, and then they just close in around them. And oftentimes when we feel like we always have to always be taking ground, sometimes there's great value in just standing firm, not giving up. And I, I think God loves the honesty. I think He loves it when we come to Him and say, God, everything in me wants to quit. In fact, there's a big percentage of me that not only wants to quick, quit, it wants to run away. <laughs> It wants to flee. It just wants to escape into something. It may be some escaping into a bottle or into drugs or just simply running away from a terrible relationship or difficult things. And God says, you know, your victory is going to begin by just holding your ground. It's a, my marriage is terrible. Just stay in it. <laughs> my, my, my family is out of control. Just stay in it. Just keep going forward and don't give in. And eventually, the enemy will break. When Paul says, or James said, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. It's just a matter of time that God guarantees the enemy will be forced to flee, but stand and hold your ground. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 5, again, he says to him, endure hardship. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all of the duties of your ministry. Timothy, I know you want to quit. I know that you've been facing all sorts of adversities and difficulties and problems, and now I've been arrested, and I'll probably be executed, and this persecution is beginning to start, and I know that, that you're just, you're, you're heart sick and your heart sunk, but just keep going. Just keep moving forward. Just keep on holding the ground that God has given you. Uh, and the, we know that many became terrified after this. In fact, this would prove to be the first of 10 official Roman persecutions. Now, keep in mind, the first 200 years of the church, there was persecution in all sorts of places under all sorts of circumstances, but a lot of them were just, you know, spontaneous reactions of local peoples and local governors. But on the bigger picture, on average, every 25 years, Rome would go on a major crusade to eliminate Christianity. And this was the beginning. This was the very first one. Up to this point, the major persecutions had been the Jews. But now for the first time, Rome becomes the avowed enemy of the Christianity, of the church. And that people were terrified is not surprising because Rome was an, a brutally efficient government. When Daniel the prophet describes them as being the, the feet of clay, uh, the legs of iron, he, you know, he's describing really a, a, a metallurgic, uh, ac metallurgically accurate description of Rome. They were like iron. They just kept coming and they kept coming. The secret of their victories over their enemies and their expansion of their empire was not that they were like Alexander the Great who could move with such rapid speed and destroying his armies that nobody could keep up with him or much less get away from him. No, theirs was a slow prodding year after year, generation after generation, uh, moving across and with uh, 
if they had a, a legion that was wiped out, they just raised another legion and sent them back out again. After the third or fourth time, most enemies found their sources and resources depleted and they just collapsed under the constant press of Rome. And yet the church of Jesus Christ, after 200 years of incessant persecution, ends up owning Rome. <laughs> they literally end up one day that half of the Roman Empire has converted to Christianity. Something that when the emperor finally converted, when Constantine converted to Christianity, some people have debated, was it sincere conversion or just political conversion? Well, either way, we'll never know until we get to heaven, but I can guarantee you this, from a politician's point of view, it was the smart conversion. <laughs> it was a thing to do because essentially the empire had been won over to Christianity, not by the force of the church, but by the faith of the church. And we need to understand that that's where our victory lies as well. Too often we think that we need to be a force in the world that changes it. No, we need to be people of faith who allow God to be the force that works through us to change the world in which we live. <clears throat> we must always remember and never forget, He is the Savior, not us. We want people to become connected with Jesus because He can save them. I can't. You know, when people will come to me and say, Pastor, would you talk to us? I need you to save our marriage. I, think, <laughs> I don't say it. I just think it. Seriously? <laughs> you really don't want that. <laughs> I, I have no power to save or fix anything. All I can tell you is turn to Jesus. He can save you. He can save your marriage. He can save your family. He can save your kids. He can save your parents. He can save your job. He can save your income. He can save. He can do anything. Everything is within His power. Turn to Him. Don't turn to human resources. Oh, if you can get people to pray with you, that's great. But don't look to man. Look to God. God is the answer to, to what ails us on every single level. But there's a secondary reason. And that is the fact that there was false doctrine in the church in Ephesus. We talked about this in, in, in 1 Timothy, but it appears that these doctrines not only were continuing, but they may in fact have been spreading. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says to Timothy, avoid godless chatter. It's interesting because the original word actually means empty words. <laughs> Words that have nothing to do with God. It's, it's a way of referring to false doctrine as being really nothing but godless chatter. He says, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching, he said, will spread like gangrene. Uh, some translators put like cancer. Among them, he says, and he goes on to call out a couple of guys, <laughs> Hymenius and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth, they say that the resurrection has already taken place. Sound familiar? Didn't we have to deal with that in First and Second Thessalonians? They say the resurrection has already taken place. Stop, in other words, stop putting your hope in Jesus coming back. You need to focus on your life here and now and take care of yourself. And he says, and they destroy the faith of some. How do they destroy the faith? Because they get them to put them faith in themselves or something here in this world instead of putting their faith in God. That's the essence of false doctrine. It takes my faith away from Christ and it puts it in something else. All false doctrines have one thing in common. They either 
depreciate who Jesus is or they exalt us above Jesus, which is basically, you might say, is essentially the same thing. But it's that displacing of Jesus as the focal point of our life, as our Savior and our Lord and our Master. And so what he's essentially saying to Timothy, now more than ever is the time to fight the good fight of faith. Now, having said that, what do I think is the key verse? Well, one thing that we've established over these many, many months of studying through these books is that when I tell you this is the key verse, I'm the one who's right, and everybody else who says something else is wrong. You, you know, the truth is, people sometimes say, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And I have to admit, it's the one I'm reading right now. <laughs> because, I, I don't know, that's, I just realized that one day is that every book I start reading is my favorite book until I get to the end and start the next one. Because it's the book that's speaking into my life. And when you ask what's the, I think, the most important verse in a, in a particular passage or book, I'm going to tell you it's the one that speaks most strongly to me in this moment of my life. So if you have a fit, different favorite verse, that's fine. It just doesn't happen to be mine. But here's what mine was. It's, it's chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, where Paul says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. You know, know the image there that they would have the altar and one of the offering, part of the altar of uh, sacrifice with an animal on it, and they would take wine and they would pour it out over the altar as a symbol of blood because wine is called the blood of the grape. And he says, I'm being poured out. My life, it's really an a way of, in a very image-filled way to say, my life is being literally poured out. I see my life, you know, in the same way you'd empty a pitcher, you can, you can see it emptying the pitcher until finally the last drop is gone and all you have is a left empty vessel. Paul says, that's me. I can see my life being poured out and, and my, my, my life, my body being emptied of myself through this process. I'm being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. The time has come for my departure. <laughs> Rabbi Zacharias one time said, one of the most important things to know in life is when it's time for you to leave. <laughs> That's true when you're visiting people. <laughs> it's true when you're involved in ministry or doing anything. It, it's, time, it's also important to know when, you're, when you've come to the end of whatever God has assigned you to. It's so important to know when you've come to the end of your earthly journey, to recognize that I, it's the time for my departure. And Paul says, I recognize that that's the time I'm in right now. It wasn't that he become depressed and hopeless. You know, it wasn't like he's saying, I just want to die. Just open a can of worms and eat them. You know, it's, like, it's not like he's in this kind of depressed state. He just says, I realize that moment that I knew would eventually come is very near and I'm ready. In fact, he says with great divine resignation, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. What a statement. I've fought the fight the best I can fight it. I ran a race and I'm now very near crossing the finish line. And finally he says, the most important thing is I never gave up my faith in Jesus. I stayed unwavering until the end. Well, let's talk a little bit about the outline of the book. And uh, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's pretty simple, really. I mean, chapter one really begins this way. It, I would say he, he tells us, be on your guard. 
And, and, and how do you stand on guard? And the very first thing I think he tells Timothy is, remember who you are. Don't, don't lose sight of who you are. And he means that in a spiritual sense, where he says in verse 5, I have been reminded of your sincere faith. And he goes on, he says, which I am persuaded now lives. And then further on, he says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. In other words, he's saying, Timothy, you know, it's easy to, to lose sight of who God has called you to be. When he begins the letter and says, Paul called to be an apostle by the will of God. He's very clear in saying, you know, I was sent by God to represent him. This was not my idea. I didn't create this ministry for myself. This is something that God has appointed to me. And he says, Timothy, don't, remember, don't forget what God has appointed you to do. Don't lose sight of the purpose for which you exist and are sucking air at this moment. Don't lose sight of that. In fact, he, I would say secondly that he adds to it that don't shrink back. Or as he says in verse 8, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, as many had become. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. What an amazing exhortation. Don't pull back. Don't shrink back because of the threat that is here. But let's redouble our effort to continue for. Let's continue in our boldness. And he says finally in verse 12, he says, this is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Speaking of the day of his death. Now, it's fascinating to me because when he says, I know whom I have believed, He's talking about an assurance of his own relationship with God and the salvation that is incumbent within that. You know, Paul, John made a really interesting statement in his first letter when he talked about people who walked away from the faith. He says, they left us because they were not of us. It's an interesting statement that, you know, uh, I've often thought, well, how would I walk away from the Lord? I'm not saying that I couldn't sin or that I'm, it's impossible for me to backslide. I think that's a possibility for anybody to behave badly. But how do you walk away from Jesus once he's taken possession of you? Even, Paul said, even if we deny him, he remains faithful. And so essentially what Paul says is, there's this indelible realization in my life, I know the one I believed in. I just know him. I can't lie to myself and say, I don't know him. That's why a friend of mine said one time, you know, the term backsliding is really kind of a, a misnomer because he says, you don't backslide. It's not like you go back to where you were. You go to someplace else, far more miserable than the place you were in before you knew the Lord. And that's why I think the most unhappy people in the world are people who are trying to run away from Jesus <laughs> because you can't. He's like white on rice. You can't fix that. You know, it goes right to the core of who you are. And so as a result, the, the voice of God becomes like the hound of heaven in your life. And so he says, Timothy, I am unshakable because I cannot deny what I know. 
I know that I was struck down on the road to Damascus. I know that he spoke to me. He spoke to me from Damascus and other places. He spoke to me at Troas. He spoke to me here and he there. And I've seen his hand. I've seen his miracles. I cannot deny his reality. And don't let fear make you run away or try to hide from that. Rather, run towards it and embrace it. Run towards the thing that you know to be true. Don't ever run away from it because you were ashamed and you were frightened. In fact, he goes on to say, guard the deposit, or in verses 13, 14, what you have heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the deposit, that is a thing that's assigned to you for faithful keeping that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you to protect that thing that God has given to you. And in his case, what had been entrusted to Timothy? Not just simply his own walk with God, but be far beyond that was the very church itself that had been placed in his care, in his oversight to care for. Part of that, he goes on to say in chapter 2, is that you need to find qualified men to help you in this world. And, and, and what qualifies somebody to do that? Well, again, there are really three things that he points out in chapter 2. He says, number one, I said they have to be people of a proven character. He says, in, again, in, in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So what's the first qualifier? Well, that you're reliable. What does the word reliable mean? <clears throat> There's a consistency. That In other words, you look at a person's life and you look at the trajectory of their life and you see it progressing towards an ever greater commitment and surrender to the will of God for your life. He says, find those men and women whose life is on a divine trajectory it doesn't matter, you know, how, how successful they are by human standards. Is there a commitment? My pastor used to always put it so well. He says, uh, God doesn't need ability. He needs availability. <laughs> there are a lot of really talented, gifted, educated, skilled people who really will never accomplish anything significant for God because they're relying and looking to all their talent, skill, <laughs> ability, uh, credentials, and so forth and so on. What God finds in short supply are people who are available, those who, like Isaiah, say, here am I, Lord, send me. That's more important than anything else. Now, when you say that, be prepared to be sent someplace that you're not particularly excited about. Lord, I just feel a need to teach your word. Just send me to minister your people. And he says, great, two-year-olds. <laughs> that's your, I want you to start, that's a two-year-old, that's what I've called you to, and you know, right away it's just going, well, I was hoping for something a little more substantial. <laughs> well, as a grandfather, I tell you, there's nothing more substantial <laughs> than a two-year-old, but that's my own weakness. Anyway, but secondly, he says that they're not only proven characters, but they're proven soldiers. When he says in verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he adds, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. In other words, there's a singleness of purpose. He wants to please his commanding officer. He isn't trying to please politicians. He isn't trying to please the public. He's trying to please his commanding officer. He says, that's what you need, that single-minded devotion. 
He's similar if anyone wants to compete as an athlete. He does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. In other words, that he, he lives a disciplined life. Thirdly, he says, or secondly, yeah, thirdly, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive the share of the crops. In other words, his hope is in the end of the harvest, not in the planting. He plants, he hoes, he waters, he cares for because he's looking forward to the day in which his labors will be rewarded, living by, with that kind of hope. The thirdly, Paul says, proven character, proven warriors or soldiers for Jesus, proven teachers, verse 15, a workman who correctly handles the word of truth. In other words, earlier in verse 13 of chapter 1, he said that someone who holds to the patterns of sound teaching. It's an interesting phrase, the form or the pattern. He's got sound teaching, and he, and he teaches as, as it was meant to be understood. It's interesting because we live in this age where people will take what are very clear, simple statements, and they say, well, what Paul really meant <laughs> or what Jesus was really saying, and they begin to make allowances for things that Scripture and historically the church has never made allowance for. So sometimes they go, well, why do you hold so dogmatically to this, this principle? It's because it's stated rather dogmatically. <laughs> it, it's not, I'm not given wiggle room here, that I'm not called to massage the Scriptures to make it feel more comfortable within the momentary context of the cultural preferences. This is just what God says, and if it's truth, it's, it's not just truth part of the time. It's not just true in Paul's day, but not true in my day. It's just truth. And if I accept that, then I'm submitting to it. But the problem is when you begin to play with that and, 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 and manipulate it, it's a slippery slope. The first time I look at a statement of Scripture and says, well, that was for then and not for now, I've just opened the door to do that with everything that I find inconvenient and uncomfortable. <laughs> and believe me, I can find a lot of those places. <laughs> I mean, God tells me to love people who my personal preference is not to do that. <laughs> it's just, uh, and yet we have to allow the Word to rule us not to do the opposite, to try to rule the Word of God. That's why he goes on in verse 24, he says, the Lord, Lord's servant must not quarrel or be argumentative, literally. Instead, he must be kind to everyone. Dang it. I, I don't think that's what he meant. Able to teach, not resentful, I am just glad that none of us struggle with these things, okay? <laughs> and then he says, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct that they will come to their senses to escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Well, which really brings us in chapter 3 to the, the last injunction of this passage. I simply quoting again where Paul says to Timothy, discharge all your duties, and part of that is to avoid the false teachers and the reprobates because he says in, in verse 1, he says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, and so forth, kind of like what you see all around you today. But he goes on and says, they'll have a form of godliness. They're going to be religious or the way we like to say it today, well, I'm not a religious person, I'm a spiritual person. They'll have a form of godliness, but they'll deny its power. The power for it 
to impact, to change, and transform your life. The power to bring you into conformity to God's will and to fulfill His purpose. And He says, as a result, they'll always be learning, but they'll never be able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They'll always be on the journey, but they'll never ever come to a destination. There'll never be this moment of really divine discovery. In fact, he even warns in verse 12, he says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. (laughs) These very people will persecute you if you try to live the godly life, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so in verse 5, he simply says, have nothing to do with them. Now, he's not saying have nothing to do with them because uh, he doesn't like them. He's just saying you need to be able to recognize when people are just a rabbit trail, (laughs) that the enemy wants you running down this rabbit trail instead of just consistently continuing to do what God has called you. One of the most important things, but often challenging things, is to know what is the voice of God and what is just the voice of chaos? What is the voice of fear and doubt and unbelief and what is the voice of God? And to listen so that we're sure that we hear God's voice. It's a great discipline, important discipline in your life to learn to listen and wait upon the Lord until you hear Him clearly enough that you can respond in accordance to what you know is the heart of God and not to allow yourself to become uh, like waters dropped in the ground flowing in whatever direction seems to have the least resistance. And then secondly, he says, stay in the Word. In verse 14 of chapter 2, he had said to us, continue in what you have learned. He says, from infancy you have learned the Holy Scriptures. And and why does it make, why is it important? He says, because it's able to make you wise for salvation. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How do I get thoroughly equipped for what God wants to do with my life? It's knowing the Word of God. I I, I can't emphasize this enough because we live in an era where people don't take this seriously enough. You can become a biblical scholar by simply spending a significant amount of time reading the Bible. That's all it takes. But people want shortcuts and they want simple formulas. But the real goal, he says, is in verse, chapter 4, verse 2, he says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Why? Because the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will just have to turn on their television and go from channel to channel. Uh, And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. In other words, I often tell people, if it doesn't make sense, it's because it doesn't make sense. Don't sit there and say, well... It makes no sense, so that must be God. No, if it doesn't make sense, it's because it's probably nonsense. But he says, endure hardship, do the work of evangelists, and again, discharge your duties, which I would say that, I mean, kind of building this thought here to to stay in the, walk in the light, stay in the light, stay in the word, and lastly, I'd say, stay in the fight. Verse 7 again, for I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, 
And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to also to all who longed for his appearing. Longed for his appearing. Do you, let me ask you this. If Jesus came tonight, would that ruin your weekend? <laughs> I remember when we were engaged and, and she's told me what we were talking one time. She's like, I just hope the Lord doesn't come before we can get married. <laughs> I said, honey, listen to what you just said. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like, she goes, oh, I know it's wrong, but I just want to get married so bad. <laughs> okay. You know, apparently, you know, the sad part is that afterwards she was saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But <laughs> she got over that false theology really quick. <laughs> Ten hours with me after the first day was all she could take. But the simple reality, I mean, most seriously, sometimes we can become so enamored by our dreams and our ambitions and our goals and what we want to do that we really don't want Jesus to come quickly. I, I, I just remember my dear mother when she was dying and every day I would come in to visit her in the morning and, and she'd come in and I'd wait till she woke up and then she'd open her eyes and she'd look around and she would say this every day I'm still here <laughs> oh I was hoping I'd go home tonight you know it's kind of like wow <laughs> wow that's what Paul says I have this longing because even though death itself the experience of death is like you know um uh, a great football player was dying of cancer and, and, and his friend asked him, he said, are, are you afraid of death? He says, of course I'm afraid of death. I've never experienced it before. <laughs> and that makes sense. I mean, that's an honest response. Of course we get afraid of the experience of death, but I want to go to heaven. I mean, ultimately I believe that that is the fulfillment and the satisfaction of everything that defines who I am. And so... That hour is going to come, and when it comes, and it will come for you, it'll come for me. It, it will come, and it, and it may come expectedly, it may come unexpectedly. But the point is, there needs to be in our heart a longing. And if you don't have that, here's the answer. Here's how you fix that. You say, Lord, give me a longing. Give me a longing for your appearing. Give me a longing for your appearing. You know, having been a groom just once in my life, I know what it's like to be standing there in the front waiting for my bride to appear. And she took longer than normal to get dressed, at least by my estimation, we were way over budget. And I began to wonder if she actually was going to appear. <laughs> Maybe she came to her senses. But when she stepped out in that beautiful dress and looking all the gorgeousness that brides always possess. It's like this is the moment that we all have been waiting for. That moment when you hear the, 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 the inhale across the room where people go, oh, she's so beautiful. And I just wonder about, I mean, I, I see this when Jesus comes and the heavens are going to open and, and, and we're going to look at him and go, oh, oh. Longing. Lord Jesus, let us long 
for your appearing, we ask in your holy name. Amen.